Welcome to Context Matters. I am Cindy Parker. In this current series, we have made our way from the early Jewish Christian church to the time when Christianity was a government-endorsed religion. To engage this topic, I invited Dr. Meredith Riedel to join our podcast table. She has been a professor for 10 years at Wheaton and Duke Divinity teaching church history, and she has been our guide through the complex history of the early church councils that were convened to hammer out some of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. Last week, Dr. Riedel said that the ecumenical councils were attended by the bishops of Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome. If we look at the geographical, historical, and linguistic context of those five cities, we might actually start to be able to guess about some of the potential hotspots that could drive a wedge between them. After all, context matters. In reality, problems started to surface in the early days. Dr. Riedel mentioned the Filioque last week, and we decided to put a pin in that discussion because we needed more time to fully explore what that was and why it was problematic in the church. This week, we jump straight into the issues related to what the church decided to believe about the Holy Spirit. Issues related to the Trinity, it's so ingrained within Christianity. But when I tell people concepts of the Trinity were actually really solidified and laid out in the church councils. And that surprises them because they think it's innate to the biblical text, but it's it's not. And so we talked about Jesus and what is his spirit, but now what is the Holy Spirit? The spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And this is another one of those, I think, very natural questions that Christians have had from the beginning who is the Holy Spirit and and what is he about? And I I think in our modern days, we tend to think of him as sort of like the force from Star Wars or something. And and he's not a, he's not a force. He's, he's definitely not a force. He's definitely not. He's a person with intellect and will and desires and emotions. He can be grieved. He, he does things. He's, he's a, he's a real person. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is the way that, the Father and the Son move in the church in the world today through the Holy Spirit. And I, I think that to our detriment in the West, we don't focus enough on the Holy Spirit. In the, in the councils, I'm glad that they took the time to say, this is who he is. You know, the, the Nicene Creed says we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord. And this is the most famous thing in the East, the giver of life. There is no life without the spirit. And this is who he comes from the father. And of course we say in the West and the son, he is worshiped, he is glorified. And this I think is interesting too. He has spoken through the prophets. This is one of the most best things about the spirit is that he wrote the Bible, right? Second Timothy three tells us all scriptures God breathed. Well, who breathed it into those people who inspired them to, to write things down is the spirit. And so when Jesus says in John 14, I'm sending you the spirit and he's going to remind you of everything I said. It's not that hard because the spirit already told the gospel writers what to write down the, the what Jesus said. Mm. So he's just reminding them of something that he's already said. And and then it goes on 
the declaration of we believe in the the church and all of that at the end. But this the section on the spirit, which is added to the second ecumenical, is I think really important, and I'm very glad that we have that. And it isn't something that was invented by Pentecostals in the 19th century. You made a comment that I would love for you to clarify, or at least talk about what the argument was about this. Is you made the distinction of how the church in the West will say the spirit proceeds from God and the son. Mm -hmm. Why just the church in the West? So this is the, I think the main reason for the split between East and West. Yes. So, and this is, we have to fast forward for the split, right? Cause this is, we're talking. Actually. So the filioque, which is the just Latin for, and the son. So when you say, I believe um, the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father, and then the Latins added filioque and the Son. That's why we call it the filioque. It was actually added early on in the West in the 6th century at the Council of Toledo because they were still fighting Arians, because the Goths of, of Europe held to an Arian understanding of Christ, that Jesus wasn't quite quite as important as God the Father, quite as powerful, not, not he was um, a lesser God, if you will. Yeah. And so the, the Council of Toledo in, I want to say 567, I'd have to look up the exact date, it's the late, late 6th century, added this to the creed in order to emphasize that, that the Spirit is not just one part of God and Jesus is another part of God. But the Spirit is one with the Father and the Son who both send the Spirit. And I think Scripture supports that as well. Scripture mm-hmm. actually actually says that Jesus says, I am sending you the Spirit. The right. Father, the Spirit of the Father, I am sending you. So uh, it was to, I think, to strengthen the theology of Christ to those who did not think Christ was very important in that area. So that's the late 6th century. It's not actually used in liturgy very commonly in the West until the 11th century. At the coronation of Otto, then it's, it's added in, and that's in the middle of the 11th century. I think the date that most church historians use for the split between East and West is 1054. And uh, <laughs> that's a, a date of convenience. Uh, it's just chosen because... There was one little thing that happened, and we can glom onto that and say that's when it happened. I think it started much earlier because the Patriarch of Constantinople in the 860s, 870s was saying, no, 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 no. Those Western Christians don't know what they're talking about. They've added to the creed. And in the East, adding to anything that has been decided by an ecumenical council is a huge no-no because – Contrary to what Dan Brown would have you believe, ecumenical councils were were not ginormous squabbles where people would then fight and there'd be a close vote and then the church would have to ram through what they wanted. Ecumenical councils require consensus in the Holy Spirit. And because God cannot contradict himself, every vote on every decree from every ecumenical council is a unanimous vote. And so... When when the, the creed was written, that was signed off on by hundreds of bishops. And so for the Western church to then just come in and change it, the Eastern church said, one does not simply add a phrase to the creed. Right. You can't do that. And the West was saying, look, we're in a different missionary situation here. And it's always 
like most creative theology and the things that upset people usually happen on the mission field. And I think this is what happened with the filioque. So going, going back just a little bit from 1054 in the ninth century, there were missionaries sent to Bulgaria from Constantinople. And there were also missionaries there from Rome. And the brand new believers in Bulgaria were confused because they were being told different things from the Eastern Christians and the Western Christians. And some of them were cultural, things like whether a priest could have a beard, uh, whether you could be baptized by a priest or if you had to be baptized by a bishop, what day you had to celebrate Easter and which how the fast was supposed to work during Easter. But the, the one doctrinal difference was this addition to the, to the creed, which the Byzantine missionaries said, no, no, you can't do that. And the Latin missionaries said, you kind of have to, it's part of the creed. And in fact, later, Latin churchmen would accuse Eastern churchmen of having taken the phrase out of the creed because they didn't even know that it was their own side. Oh, right. You have, yes, massive misunderstanding between these two sides, which is, I think, also partly linguistic in some ways, probably, because yeah. one's speaking Latin and one speaking Greek. So, I, But I think it started in the ninth century with Photius, who wrote the circular letter that went around to all of the patriarchs, except the one in Rome, of course, saying, listen, these people in Bulgaria are, are problematic and they're teaching this filioque. And so he listed what he called the errors of the Latins. And they were cultural. I think there were five, but four of them were cultural. One of them was the filioque. And then that list gets developed later on in the 11th and 12th centuries and gets added to. So in 1054, the event that I referred to that happened, that people like to point to as the thing that triggered it, there was a cardinal from the West visiting Constantinople. And, and real quick, just yes. just before you get into this great story, yeah. Yeah. can we just define East and West? Like yes. who is deciding where the boundary goes. Because I think this is quite significant in how people ended up thinking differently. So can you point out what is West and what is East? Probably the, the easiest way to do it would be to go back to the arrangement that was made with the Roman emperors to divide the Roman Empire into two halves and to have an emperor for each half and a junior emperor for each half, with the idea that the senior emperors would rule for 20 years, and then they would hand off to the junior emperors, who would then choose their next junior emperors. And this was an arrangement that was made at the end of the third century, because the third century had been such a catastrophe for the Roman Empire, with emperor after emperor, there was no continuity in leadership, and they actually, historians call it, uh, there's a phrase that they use, the the problems of the third century or the third century, the third century crisis, that's what they call it. And they, they tried to resolve this by, by splitting the, the empire in, into two halves. And Constantine was one of the junior emperors. And he defeated his, his rival at the Milvian Bridge in 312. And so that's 312. I think it was 312. Anyway, um, that's probably the easiest way to decide what's east and west is the, the demarcation that the, the Roman Empire itself took. But it developed because if you look at a map of the five patriarchal seas, you have Jerusalem, which is all the way over in Palestine. Just right. a little to the south, you've got Alexandria. Just a little to the north, you've got Antioch. A little bit further.
further north and a little bit further west, you have Constantinople. But then you have to you have to turn the globe quite some distance to get all the way over to Rome in the west. So Rome is the outlier. Right. And the center of Christianity for the first thousand years is in the Middle East with those right. four bishoprics. It, they continue even after the rise of Islam in the seventh century. But Rome begins to rebuild after it's sacked twice by the Goths and then begins to rebuild after the the eastern half of the empire is struggling with the advance of Islam. So I think the change comes around the 7th, 8th century. And there's a linguistic barrier because in, the, in, in Rome, they're speaking Latin. In the East, they're always speaking Greek. It's part of the hangover of Alexander the Great. So when I say East and West, it's the influence of the Latin-speaking church versus the influence of the Greek-speaking church. And it's interesting because geographically then they're turning in opposite directions to face oncoming threat. So whether it's the Goths or the Islamic empire that is developing and becoming stronger. And so there's a split geographically where they think their problems are coming from and linguistically and historically and everything. It's fascinating. And I think probably also the Latin empire felt a little bit beset on both sides because there are Muslims in the Iberian Peninsula from the early 8th century. So starting in, I think, 711 up until, I want to say 1492, I believe, was or 1491 was the last pushing out of, of all of the, the Moors and so on from, from Spain. And so there were Muslims also in well, we don't think of Spain as Europe, but Spain is in Europe. Yeah. And <laughs> so the Latin church there had lots of things going on with, with, with them. And yeah, so the demarcation line, roughly the Danube River, perhaps. Okay. So you have Eastern Europe is mostly Eastern Orthodox, Greek speaking. And then from the Danube, sort of um, Austria, Germany to the West, everything to the West is Latin speaking. Great. Okay. So let's get back to the yeah. drama of the cardinal. Right. So it's the middle of summer, 1054, and Pope Leo IX had sent this, this cardinal. His name was Humbert, or Humbert of Silvia Candida. He fancied himself uh, pretty important. And he shows up in the Hagia Sophia, and he doesn't like the way that the Eastern Christians are worshiping. And he especially doesn't like, you're going to laugh at this, the fact that in communion, in the East, they eat bread that is leavened. They eat actual normal bread. Right. Whereas in the West, they eat bread with no yeast. And so the Cardinal um, Humbert walks into the Hagia Sophia and says, the Pope is excommunicating you because you eat bread at communion. (laughs) And lots of other things that he just doesn't like about the way the East does things. And the patriarch of Constantinople was a man named Carolarius, who, among other things, would wear red shoes, which is something that is only allowed by the emperors. So he's making a, a statement about his power. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever noticed, not this pope, Francis doesn't do it, but every pope up until Francis has always worn lots of bling and red shoes. And those red shoes and that bling is modeled after the patriarch of Constantinople. I did not know that. <laughs> I yeah. love this. 
Yeah. So, I mean, Francis doesn't do it so much, but everybody before him was like, yeah, yeah red shoes. So Carolarius has this idea of his own power. And so he knows what's going on. And he says to Humbert, more or less, I mean, the conversation didn't happen as dramatically as I, as I play it out in class to embarrass myself and educate my students. But they, <laughs> he says, look, the Pope died three months ago. You're just making this up. You've desecrated our divine liturgy. And so I, I anathematize you. So what we have are, are mutual excommunication slash anathema, anathemas coming between this cardinal and this patriarch. And so that's why people point to that as the final break. On the, on the ground, however, things didn't really change. I mean, Humbert went back to the West and, and there, no, but there were no armies sent against each other. I mean, they didn't really like each other and they thought each other were doing it right. But, but they'd known that ever since the 860s in the, with the Bulgarian missionaries. I think what really made the change, I think that the, the actual breaking point was 1204. Are you familiar with the date of 1204? I don't want to. No, I was just trying to think what happened in 1204. Yeah, it's a, it's a big, big date that just reverberates in the minds of the East. That is the date that the crusaders of the fourth crusade sacked the, the city of Constantinople. Oh. Latin Christians came in and destroyed the city of their Greek brothers. And the, the documents from that time are fascinating to read because the Latin Christians were having worship services outside the walls of Constantinople. And they were telling their soldiers, God has told us to do this because these Greeks aren't real Christians because they do. They, they're, they're so among the things, so their priests um, have, have, uh, have wives because you're allowed in the Eastern church to have a wife, unless you're a bishop, they eat real bread. When they take communion, they take it differently. They, they do this in Greek, and we all know that it should be in Latin. And so there's lots of things that make the Greek church e easy to mock because it's different. Right. And for their side on, on the East, they were saying, look, their, their priests are, are, are doing all kinds of horrible things that don't make any sense, including they're giving their people bread, which is supposed to be the body of Christ, but it's, the bread is dead. It doesn't have any yeast in it. Right. So it's not the real bread of life. It can't be. It's dead bread. So that's part of one of the, the the theological differences that they had. But I think when the when the armies of the Fourth Crusade sacked Constantinople and went crazy for three days, looting, pillaging, burning, taking down uh, everything that they could get their hands on, and take carting it back off to Europe, um, this was really the final straw for the East, and the Latins ended up occupying Constantinople until 1261 when the Eastern army was able to kick them out and take the city back. And uh, there's more stories about that too. I don't want to, don't want to bore you about this, but um, this is where I, I think that the big difference was between East and West. And they tried in the 14th century, there were a couple of councils, um, council of Ferrara, Florence, which has two cities because interestingly they had to flee from from Ferrara because of plague <laughs> um, to go to, to Florence um, and hope that they wouldn't die there of the plague. And lots of people did die of the plague during, during, the, uh, during the council then, but they weren't able to agree. And by the 15th century, the East was feeling the pressure of the Ottoman Empire and was appealing to the West for help, especially military support. And one of the conditions that the West put on that military support was 
that the Eastern Church had to say the Filioque in the Creed. And one of the wow. one of the Byzantine emperors went home and said, look, I've, I've told them that we'll do this, but you don't have to. You can just stay quiet during that part in church. And it didn't, it didn't go over well, and the people rioted, and they kicked him out, and he died on campaign, and the people wouldn't even let him be buried, and they made his wife, his widow, promise that she would never bury him, and they were really angry about it. Um, so the Filioque has been one of those things that's been difficult to reconcile yeah. between East and West. And it's obviously so much more than just a word or two. It's oh, deeply yeah. embedded in these cultural um, conflicts and historical conflicts and this ultimate turning brother against brother, right? Yeah. And the offense gets driven so deep down that it almost becomes difficult to to bring healing to in a certain sense. Yes, because theology is never something that just happens in a book. I mean, after right. after the sack of 1204, they took all of the stuff back to Italy. Have you ever been to Venice? Have you ever been inside St. Mark's Cathedral? I have not been to Venice. You can, I'm certain you can find photographs on the, uh, on the, on the internet, but the inside of St. Mark's Cathedral is paved with 9,000 square meters of gold mosaic. And it is a cross and square church. It's an Eastern architectural design that was built around um, theoretically the body of St. Mark who was smuggled out of Constantinople in the ninth century. So the legend goes and the inside of that church looks like what Byzantine churches would have looked like where every possible surface is paved in gold mosaic. But when the, when the, uh, people who are invited to the conference, the council to discuss the union of the churches, they landed at Venice and they looked around and, and all of this spolia from, that had been taken from Constantinople was on display in Venice. Uh, right there in the, in the square, inside the church. They, they, on the top of the porch of St. Mark's, for a long time stood a quadriga, which is um, four horses, which are a, a symbol of victory. So when a, a returning Roman emperor came back from campaign victorious, he would ride through the Golden Gate of Constantinople, um, or in Rome there's a gate where they would do that, on a chariot being drawn by these four horses. They're a symbol of victory, and you see them on the Arc de Triomphe in in um in mm-hmm. Paris, they're on they're mm-hmm. on the Brandenburg Tour in Berlin. They are mm-hmm. everywhere in Europe. You see a quadriga, you know this is a symbol of victory. Well, those four horses that are in St. Mark's, they're inside now, but they were at one time on the porch, were on the Hippodrome in Constantinople. And they're gorgeous. They're one of my favorite archaeological items because they are 99% copper, so they have a, a sheen to them that most bronze statuary doesn't have. And they think they were probably created 5th, 6th, 7th century BC in Greece and taken to Constantinople because when Constantine founded the city of Constantinople, Jerome has this wonderful phrase. He says, Constantine clothed the city in the nudity of other cities. <laughs> he just stole stuff. <laughs> decorated Constantinople. So those horses had been there from the 320s up until 1204. And then when the Greeks landed in Venice, they saw them on St. Mark's Cathedral. And how do you sit down with someone and talk about union when you see all this stuff that your grandparents told you about 
you heard used to be in your home city and was stolen a couple hundred years ago. As I listen to Meredith, I cannot help but see the value in listening to this cautionary tale. In our modern day, we are not always aware of how dramatically our environment speaks and how purposeful we really need to be about considering what it is saying when engaging, especially in conversations of reconciliation. In North America, especially in the U.S. right now, we are struggling with the deep roots of injustice that grew out of slavery. And even though some people would prefer to ignore the continuing ramifications of that historic injustice, recent events demonstrate that the roots are still there. I believe there are many well-intentioned people who want to engage earnestly in the process of justice and reconciliation. And as I edit this episode, I'm listening again to what Meredith said about the Latin and Greek churches coming together to establish peace, but doing so in a place with physical and ostentatious displays of past offenses I empathize with the Eastern Church, even if the core issue stemmed from the filioque, which is an older offense than the sack of Constantinople and has nothing to do with the gold mosaics in St. Mark's Cathedral. Yet it is not a surprise that the physical reminders of past wrongs created an insurmountable barrier to the conversations of peace. And so today, I'm reminded I must carefully watch and pay close attention to issues like the debates about what statues in public spaces and inside our private churches are saying to different people in my community, because maybe the physical context is shouting out a different message than the well-intended words that are being spoken. Just food for thought. You know, it's, there's more to theology than um, polite disagreements about doctrine. Right. And that is something that I think is so important for us to keep in mind is the development of theology. And it doesn't happen in a vacuum. And it happens usually because something is requiring it to happen. And mm-hmm. we we forget that. And so those of us who go to seminary end up in these systematic theology classes where everything is nice and neat. Oh, very tidy. Yes. Very, very tidy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it's really too bad because this history that you just walked us through is full of drama and intrigue and complications and humans who are trying to love God as best they can. And they're all just making tons of mistakes. Oh, and yes. oh, yeah. that is a much more fascinating context in which to say, how are we going to figure out what we believe? Yeah, so I, I love the historical context of these theological debates. I think it's hugely important. And one of the things I love about history is that it's never boring. No. And, and I always tell my students, if, if, if history is boring, then you're doing it wrong. Right. It's I agree. Not boring. <laughs> there's a there's a wonderful story about the Doge of Venice who who financed the Fourth Crusade. And he was old and he was blind and he got all the way to Constantinople. And after they took the city, um it was less than a year later he died. And he was buried 
inside Hagia Sophia, the great cathedral that had been built by Justinian in the 6th century. And when the Byzantines, when the Eastern Christians took over the city in 1261, one of the first things they did was dig up his bones. And they, there's a story of when they, they dug up his, the, the bones of his body and they, they threw them out in the street. And they said that even the dogs wouldn't eat the bones because they were good Byzantine dogs. Oh. <laughs> there's, there's a beautiful mosaic called the, um, the deasis, which is, means intercession that faces the spot where the doge had been buried. And it's a, it's a mosaic of Jesus. And he's got John the Baptist on one side and his mother on the other. And they're holding their hands out to him, interceding with Jesus, you know, rebuild our city, save our city. What's going on here? And they're all looking very sad. And part of the reason for that was this, this break within Christendom between the East and the West, the Greek and the Latin Christians that had destroyed this beautiful city. And many of the relics, by the way, from particularly from the the Christian rel- the relics of Christ, the things that were supposed to be his his robe, his sandal, his crown of thorns, um, a few other things, where they were actually taken all the way to France, and were built by one of the Louis into the cathedral that we call um, it's across from Notre Dame, the Sainte Chapelle, the Holy Chapel, and all of those. Constantinopolitan relics of Christ were were um, put in this chapel, which has is known for its absolutely gorgeous uh, stained glass, and would still be there except that the French Revolution happened in 1789, and they the city was sacked and those relics disappeared, and no one knows where they are anymore. But that 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 church was built to house those relics from the east, and I haven't even gotten into the Crusades. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we will have to do a to be continued. I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so amazing. Yeah. I thank you so much. I mean, one just for great storytelling, but just for the wealth of information that you bring. Um, I just am so grateful. I think this subject is so fascinating, but necessary. And I wish we could bring it into our normal conversations a little bit more than we do. But thank you for doing your part to educate us on how significant this history is. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure to talk about the things that I study and think are really important and interesting and get other people interested in them as well. Because yes, I think our conversations might be might be more interesting, more fun if people talked more about things like the sack of Constantinople and the Fourth Ecumenical Council. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I, I totally agree. <laughs> I know. We're nerding out now, I realize. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It might just be the two of us here. No, I know for sure other people are, are interested. So I, you know, I just thank you for being our guide among such tricky issues. It's just been such a pleasure. I think they're very important. I think Christians ought to know that other Christians got together in the past and decided what do we really believe and why uh, are, why are there some of us saying these things that don't sound right? And, you know, I think it's, it's important to know that the creeds and the confessions that we have are not, they aren't being imposed upon us. They were agreed by the majority of the church and not as a matter of we will enforce our will, but as a matter of seeking the, the truth by the Holy Spirit and, and leading us into the, the truth of, of our faith and not 
imposing it from from without, as it were. That's not that's not what the Christian faith is like. So, I think it's important to know these things. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Peter Lordson at Sycamore Sound created the music you hear. I edited and produced this episode, but only because I have amazing people like Lisa and Asuga Abaya who have partnered with me on Patreon. My Patreon partners make it financially possible for me to create this podcast for you. You can partner with me too, not only on Patreon, and there is a link on my website at narrativeofplace.com, but you can spread the word about this podcast and be sure to rate it on whichever streaming service you use. Thank you for joining me at the podcast table. And until next week, stay healthy and stay curious about the world around you. Mm-hmm.